Welcome to the QAV Investing Podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. This is episode 507, the free edition of 507, recorded on Tuesday, the 22nd of February, 2022. 2202-2022, I guess the date was when we recorded this. That's cool. Uh, This week on the show, we're talking about Nevexa portfolio issues over confidence in investors and problems that can lead to. Tom Murphy resigning from the board of Berkshire Hathaway at the young age of 96. What a slacker he is. Uh, Berkshire investing in a crypto bank. Charlie Munger's recent Q&A at the age of 98. Uh, Bell Financial's money laundering problems. Uh, Hum's acquisition by LFS and uh, Ari's buying a 15% stake of GMA. If you're new to this podcast, welcome, first of all. Um, basically, let me let me just give you the laydown of what happens on this show. My friend and co-host, Tony Kynaston, is a Sydney-based, very successful investor, been around, well, been investing professionally for about 30 years, uh, been very successful at it. His average compound annual growth is uh, about 19.5% over that period, which is pretty good. And he accomplishes that return because he has a system that he calls QAV, quality at value. It involves a a checklist where he looks at a bunch of data points and scores a company based on those data points. And then he stack ranks the all odds according to the scores that the checklist produces and then buys from the top of the list. And there's a bunch of rules about when to buy, when to sell, all that kind of stuff. And that's what we talk about on the podcast how Tony's QAV system works. He teaches us how to invest like he invests. Uh, We have a free edition and a club edition. This is the free edition. The club edition is for our club members and uh, they get uh, an extra half an hour to an hour of podcast each week plus access to Tony's checklist and to our private Facebook group and to meetups and videos and being able to ask Tony questions and other stuff like that. Um, uh, if there's, there's probably a lot of terminology if you're listening for the first time that might go over your head today that's specific to QAV and how we do it. Don't worry about that. Um, if you want to keep listening, you can go back and listen to our introduction episodes. Uh, episode 301, where we talk about Tony's background, how he developed QAV, 303 and 305, which is uh, actually teaches uh, the basics of the system and, and how it works. Uh, and then if you want to know more, you can sign up for a two-week free trial to a club. Anyway, without mucking around anymore, let's get stuck into this week's episode. Welcome back to QAV, the podcast, as opposed to the film, which will be hitting cinemas later this year. I'm kidding. The Tony Kynaston story. QAV, the Tony Kynaston story. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, TK? Straight to YouTube. Ah, good. (laughs) Good. Yeah, just still down at Cape Shank enjoying life. It's been really good. Golf's been great. That's good. Heading back next week, is that right? Correct. I'll do one more recording down here next Tuesday and then I'll I'll push off and and go via Wagga, catch up with Ruddy for a while and then get to Sydney on the weekend. Cases in your apartment building in Sydney are under control? No, they've dropped, but they're still there. Still a couple last time I heard. They went from seven to two apartments. So, But, yeah, I can't stay here forever, unfortunately. (laughs) Unfortunately. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. 
Yeah. You've, how long have you been down there now? A couple of months? Yeah, since just before Christmas. Although it is starting to chill down a bit. It's still pretty good during the day, getting a bit cooler at night. Autumn's coming. And you get no one to cuddle up with? Yeah, so I'm, luckily enough, Jen's coming down on the weekend. Her father's having his 90th birthday. So we'll catch up then, which will be nice. All right. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about QAV Light, Tony? Yeah, so this is a great initiative that Cam came up with about turning uh, or using our stock tips to let people uh, have a, a smaller subscription but get a couple of tips a week and build up their portfolio that way without having to do all of the, the downloads and the work themselves in the spreadsheet. seems to be well-received by uh, a lot of our listeners. It's, I guess, designed for a lot of our, our, our people, our listeners, who have told us that they're, you know, they're doctors, they're business people, they're truck drivers or whatever, and they're working long hours every week. They just don't have the time to sit down and even just spend an hour a day managing their portfolio. So this is a, a quicker way to do it. So uh, that's our new, uh, our new offering and it's being taken up quickly. Yeah, it was a suggestion that I got from one of our club subscribers actually who said, you know, the free stock tips you're putting out each week is great, but for people that aren't club members and they're not able to run the QAV process by themselves, they're not going to really know when to sell and that puts them in a difficult situation where if they buy something, they don't know what to do with it then. Do they just hold it forever, etc.? So uh, he said what you need to do is really provide more of a full service offering where you you tell them what to buy, but then you also tell them when to sell it and what to replace it with and that kind of stuff. And we thought, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense because we were cognizant of, the, uh, cognizant of the fact that, you know, about only about 60% of the stocks that we recommend continue to do well in the short to medium term. We often have to dump a lot of them with rule one sales, but people who don't know how to do QAV by themselves wouldn't know how to do that. So that we launched that last week, QAV Lite. We will tell you what to buy. We'll tell you when to sell it. All you need to do is do the trading yourself. 29 bucks a month, you get a weekly email from us every Monday telling you stocks to buy. And then uh, when we get alerts that we have to sell them, we will send you an alert telling you to sell it. All you need to do is do the trade. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light if you want to give that a go. No fixed terms, no fixed contracts, month by month. Test it for a couple of months, see how you go, see if you like it. All right. I wanted to start this week, Tony, about talking about the uh, our portfolio, the QAV portfolio, and the analysis that you've done on Nevexa and the big problem that you found. Yeah, so I guess it's a problem. I think Nevexa just sent us an email saying they're going to release a, a new version of Nevexa, which will address it. But um, I think our portfolio has been underreporting its performance because Nevexa, when it gets dividends or any sort of uh, return of capital, or even if we sell something and then don't reinvest all that cash, and the Vexor isn't accounting for that cash anywhere. So it kind of got me a bit worried when I was looking at the, not worried, but I'm scratching my head when I was looking at our weekly performance figures. And I'm thinking we've dropped a lot since the, probably the high point in the market around October last year. And I couldn't reconcile how the numbers could, uh, could add up. So I downloaded all the transactions from the Vexor and ran it through Excel. And, and what's happening is, all of that cash that's coming in for whatever reason is just sitting nowhere in the VEXA. It is being added to our performance, but it's not being added to the dollar value of the portfolio. 
and it's also not being reinvested. So the cash balance is, is big enough to have bought a couple of more stocks along the way. So we actually have uh, too few stocks in the portfolio and they haven't been compounding. So the cash has been sitting there earning nothing for the last, whatever it is, two and a bit years. Uh, so yeah, so I think Nivex is going to address that. So we'll see what comes out of that. But I think what I might have to do for a while anyway is to drop the transactions into a spreadsheet again and just um, do our portfolio performance from that. The other thing which is still bothering me is is the way that Nivexa calculates our performance. And I'm not saying it's wrong the, the way that they do it. They claim it's it's the way that fund managers do it, but it doesn't kind of suit our, our fund, which is a, a closed amount of money without money coming in and money going out regularly. So again, I dropped that into Excel. And since the portfolio was fully invested in September 2019, which is just a little under two and a half years, we're um, we're achieving 20.3% compound growth. That's using the simple CAGA formula in Excel, which is RRI is the name of the formula. And in fact, as I said, that's probably underperforming what should have been happening because there's a large cash component sitting in that that we didn't reinvest. So yeah, a couple of issues there with the Nidexa portfolio. We'll rectify them and going forward, we'll reinvest the cash and report our performance using a CAGA formula. So if, um, you know, we've talked on and off over the last year or so about the different portfolio tools, ShareSite, Nivexa, Stock Doctor that we've played around with. And I think we've been happy with the way that any of them report, but uh, just a heads up for anyone else out there that's using those uh, tools that you might want to not really take their reporting numbers as being gospel. Might have to try doing your own CAGA. Absolutely. I'm just, I might actually reach out to Brett. I know that he put together an Excel spreadsheet to track performance for some of his, his work. So if we can get a copy of that, download our Nivexa transactions and use that going forward, that might help. And if he's amenable to it, make it available to other people so they can do the same download from whatever port- portfolio service they're using and just double check things as a bit of a sanity check. Yeah, good thinking. All right, moving right along then. There was this article, I think Stephen Mab sent you to Chris Leitner's article, you're probably overconfident and what can you do about it? Why you're probably over the confident, what you can do about really good uh, article, I thought. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, so I think Steve pointed me towards Chris Leitner in the past, but this article came up recently and, uh, yeah, it's everything we've been talking about that uh, people, particularly if they're, well, the article points out if they're male, but, but also too if, if they've had a bit of success in the share market, uh, that they might become very overconfident and uh, and that might be their downfall longer term, especially if they're buying into, you know, the dot-com stocks or the buy now, pay later space or Bitcoin or whatever. But yeah, great article. Uh, it's on Livewire if um, people want to read it. I did post it in the group, so chances are people have. But uh, there's a lot of good quotes from it too. Yeah, that was in our uh, QAV Club group. So people who aren't members of QAV Club wouldn't have seen that, but yeah, you can look it up. Why you're probably overconfident and what you can do about it. A couple of really good quotes. I like this thing he said about IPOs that even if they know it, which most apparently don't, it doesn't matter to the overconfident that, for example, the average initial public offering is at best a mediocre and often a losing proposition. They believe that they can distinguish the small number of eventual winners from a large number of losers. 
According to The Australian on the 27th of January, more people lost on new stock market listings last year than made money. The losses during such a strong year for equity markets should be a wake-up call. Quite the contrary, such results should surprise nobody because they're the norm. According to NASDAQ, what happens to IPOs over the long run, 15th of April 2021, since 1981, three years after they floated, almost two-thirds of IPOs significantly underperformed the overall market. It's true that a few saw spectacularly. Equally, however, many more sink abysmally. Then he's got a quote from this report. Such misapprehensions lead the overconfident to transact too frequently, invest in areas that are much more risky than they realize, and time the market. The overconfident substitute their mistaken recollections and unrealistic expectations for base rates and plausible estimates of risk, and where such assessments aren't available, they assert blind faith in their ability to steer a successful course through uncertainty. Which I know we've we've talked about it a lot when we're talking about tech stocks like Afterpay over the last few years or, or Bitcoin when they've gone through these massive runs, which look fantastic and it looks like a lot of people would have made a lot of money out of it. But I'm always stuck with this question for myself personally, if I invest in anything like that, and it's not based on fundamentals like you teach us with your QAV, but it's just based on FOMO, fear of missing out. How, how will I know when to sell? And my, my instinctive reaction is always, well, I'll just you know, when it starts to drop, I'll just sell. But I know that in practical sense, it's not that easy. We can get drop by how much? 5%, 10%, 20%, 50%. When do I sell and how do I know it's not going to turn around? And like I was having, I was having some fun with our old friend Torsten Hoffman the other day, the producer of our film and also a couple of films on Bitcoin. He's a big Bitcoin advocate. And he was plugging me, he was again plugging Bitcoin. Oh, it's the greatest thing ever. It's going to be huge. And I go, well, you know, what about the people who bought it when it was $90,000 a few months ago? Now it's down to 50000 And he said something like, oh, that's such, a, that's such a lame response that there are memes around it all over the internet. Like you, you got to double down, you buy the dip. <laughs> you know, really? Not easy to say to somebody who invested everything they had in it when it was at $90,000 and it's now down to fifty. you know? Yeah, and there was, I remember reading an article last year in the Fin Review about someone who sold their house and invested in Bitcoin. So uh, I hope they did okay, but probably not. I mean, the Bitcoin in particular, but all I mean, it's just like the dot com boom and the, and some of the dot com stocks now. There'll be great uh, behavioural investing psychology case studies one day for someone like Daniel Kahneman because yeah, it's fear of missing out, it's anchoring. There's all sorts of behavioural psychological reasons why people do this and it done in Kruger effect, which is the overconfidence angle that people think they're, they're better at investing than what they really are. That's, as I said in my post on the Facebook group, there was a test in the article and I scored pretty high on the overconfidence scale. And it made me realize that without a QAV system, you know, I'd be making a lot of mistakes and I did make a lot of mistakes when I first started investing because of all these psychological things. You know, you think you're successful because you're doing well with your career, but that's got nothing to do with investing. Or you can even be successful as an investor for six months or a year or two years, right? And yeah. you think, oh, I'm pretty shit hot at this. Look at me. I'm a legend. But, you know, then it all goes pear-shaped and you back to where you started. Yeah. And like with your Bitcoin example, like the question is now it's come back, do you buy more or do you enter the market? Well, without a system, without fundamentals, how do you ever answer that question? 
So that's the point of this is, you know, the great thing with QAV is that it gives us the rules. It tells us what to do, when to do it, what not to do, and you don't have to, like, even if you are overconfident, if you're following the rules, QAV will get you out when things are going pear-shaped. And it's not just, um, you know, average punters like me doing this too. Leitner writes, overconfidence is rife in financial markets. It's not just retail investors, financial advisors, central bankers, fund managers, journalists, and senior executives also succumb to it. In this context, it's worth mentioning that men and women tend to make different kinds of financial mistakes. On average, women are less predisposed than men to overconfidence. Indeed, they often lack financial self-confidence. They thereby commit fewer investment errors of commission than men, but their reticence to invest is an error of omission. Good point. Then he says, egged by bullish experts, in inverted commas, people's views about present and future economic conditions, overall markets and particular companies' prospects, etc., when compared to subsequent reality, are unrealistically confident and optimistic. If its consequences weren't so costly, this situation would be comical. Analysts, central bankers, journalists and strategists who routinely and sometimes grossly overestimate their ability to prophesy, issue overly optimistic prognostications based partly on, upon CEOs and economists' overly sanguine biases about companies and the economy as a whole. Moreover, investors who are overconfident about their skills and excessively cheerful about the future gravitate towards companies run by arrogant about their skills and overly buoyant about the future executives. <laughs> oh, it's like, like a club, uh, isn't it? Sounds so true. Yeah, it is true. And that's, that's notwithstanding all of the conflictions, the incentives for people to pump stocks or, or to, to say how good their future is going to be for their own company. That's all in there as well, not just overconfidence, but the fact they have a vested interest. Or journalists plugging companies, you know, based on how many times they've been taken out to dinner or the races. Yeah, potentially. Or, or even, I mean, journalists are, are interesting too in that they're, they're looking for the story, whether it's, you know, necessarily right or not, or good investment. They're one of the reasons why CEOs spend stories so they can get publicity for their stock and the stories aren't, aren't a great way to invest. Yeah. And journalists don't get held to account for saying something positive about something that went pear-shaped a year or two later. Like, yeah, yeah. No one gets held to account, Cam, except, oh, for, the, except yeah. for the poor investor. The buck stops with them. I mean, like how many times have I seen a CEO spectacularly explode and then pop up a couple of years later as CEO of something else? Or how many times have I seen investment bankers change banks and go back to work again after they blew up the company they just left? It's just, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> Get to wash your hands of it and just move on. No one remembers. There's no institutional memory and for stuff like this, you just move on. It's like the old classic, that quote of yours just then from Leitner is like the, the classic one from Buffett, that Wall Street's the only place that people take, who take Rolls Royces to work, take advice from people who take the subway. All right, good article. Anyway, moving right along, Murph resigned from the Berkshire board. People that have been listening to you for a long time will know the name of Tom Murphy. Murph, he had an influence in, uh, you know, at least one of the numbers in QAV, right? One of the important ones, yeah, um, the price to operating cash flow limit. Yes, when you build up a network of TV stations, which eventually became one of the big networks, ABC, I think, from memory in the States. And uh, so he must be getting pretty old though now, Cam. I imagine that's why he's retiring from the board. 
And the book was The Outsiders, which I recommend to anyone, not just because of the Murph story, but there's, I think, about seven or eight different stories in there about uh, almost unsung heroes of investing and, and what they did. You know, there's a guy who ran a company called Teledyne and used strict financial investment measures to grow his business into a huge aerospace organization and technology organization. There's the Tom Murphy story. I think Buffett's even in there. And, you know, and Buffett's always made the case that there's only one job a CEO should be good at, and that's the deciding where the capital goes, where to invest. You know, but, but as we just said before, these days most CEOs uh, seem to look sharp, dress sharp and talk sharp rather than you know, invest their capital wisely. Yeah, Murph is uh, 96 uh, and retiring from the board of Berkshire. It's like he's uh, just a slacker. What's his problem? (laughs) Well, it it also tells you how sticky Buffett is, how how people want to spend their lives with him, that they they stay on the board until they're pretty much over, until they can fall off their perch, usually. Or vice versa. Like, he's sticking to them. Like, uh, I quote uh, from Warren about Murph. He says, most of what I learned about management, I learned from Murph, Tom Murphy. I just kicked myself because I should have applied it much earlier. So uh, that's that's. Pretty good endorsement. Yeah, so definitely, uh, if you haven't read The Outsiders, it's a great book. I recommend it. Continuing with Berkshire, got a lot of Berkshire stuff in my notes this week. There's a story in Fortune I read about uh, Berkshire taking a position in a crypto fund, which I think shocked everyone. Years after calling Bitcoin rat poison, I think it's actually Charlie's <laughs> term, but still, Warren Buffett just <laughs> in his uh, Q&A this week, uh, <laughs> Munger's gone, gone from calling a rat poison to a venereal disease, <laughs> which I loved. I think he called it rat poison squared. Yes, that's right. And then uh, he also said, none of my daughters better turn up married to someone who's a crypto investor. <laughs> His daughters have all got to be in their 70s now, so yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Anyway, uh, years after calling Bitcoin rat poison, Warren Buffett just invested a billion dollars in a crypto-friendly bank. His company has bought a billion dollars worth of stock in a digital bank that focuses on crypto, a company called Nubank NU, digital bank based in Brazil, the largest of its kind in Latin America. So-called neobank, a type of bank that operates differently from the traditional banking system by not relying exclusively on physical locations and instead focuses primarily on digital services. Well, are you, you going to start investing in crypto now, Tony? Is, are, you going to, are you capitulating? No, I'm not. And I don't think Buffett is either. I, I haven't researched this very much, but two things spring to mind. First of all is that uh, this could be a total TED investment. So these are the two chaps that now run a large part of the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio as a backup to Warren, but also as a replacement for Warren when he does um, shuffle off. And they've been the ones who's kind of spearheaded the investment in Apple and aren't as constrained around tech as, as Buffett has been in the past. And that's, that's because Buffett cheerfully admits that it's outside his circle of competence. He doesn't know how to value it. So the first thing is it could have been done by somebody else besides Warren, but not sure. And secondly, Brazil was the thing that uh, flagged my attention because for a long time, Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett have been partnering with a group called 3R Capital, uh, which are based in Brazil. And this could be one of theirs. So often often in the past, 
Berkshire Hathaway have either funded 3R Capital into investments or they've actually taken a position side by side or a blend of both. So it's entirely possible that this is a, a funding deal with 3R Capital. 3R Capital are really interesting. And if we're talking about books, if, we, if you can get a hand on their story too, I'm just trying to look it up. It's really interesting. So it's, it's an investment bank from Brazil founded by an ex-professional tennis player who decided he wasn't good enough to be world number one. So he'd, he'd uh, move, move away from his life in tennis and got a job in an investment bank. And it's just a, it's, it's an interesting management philosophy. It's very much in, incentive-based and it's a very controversial company. So, for example, when Berkshire Hathaway tried to buy, I'm going to say Kraft, a big company like Kraft anyway, uh, they were, were rebuffed because um, 3R were also in the deal. And 3R are known for, you know, your classic sort of private equity takeover of a company and then ripping all the costs out, either slashing and burning with the staff or closing the stationary cupboards and, and not letting people have pens or paper clips. So it's a controversial partnership. And even when I went to the Berkshire Hathaway AGM, they were being asked questions about, you know, did they condone the ruthless behaviour of, of 3R? But that aside, I think this is probably one of the reasons why it's, um, it's in Brazil. And bear in mind that the Brazilian banking system won't be as developed as Western banking systems. So New Bank may well be a good investment. And you're often seeing this in the emerging countries that they sort of leapfrog an industry. So they go, I remember the classic example was laptops aren't selling well in, in the third world because they've all jumped to phones and use apps on their phones. So this could be the case as well. If, if banking hasn't been that great in Brazil or in South America, they may have jumped to, to online banking, which uh, New Bank would be part of. Might it be called 3G Capital? I found a book called Dream Big, had the Brazilian trio behind 3G Capital. Thank you. 3G Capital. I got that wrong. Sorry. Acquired Anauza Bush, Burger King and Heinz. And there's a quote here. From Buffett in Amazon, my friend and now partner, Jorge Paolo, and his team are among the best businessmen in the world. He's a fantastic person, and his story should be an inspiration to everybody as it is for me. Yeah, so it's a good story to read, I guess, within the framework that they are pretty ruthless when they take over a company. And Heinz uh, was, a, was a classic one that, that they did repair a lot of costs from and make, made a lot of people unhappy. All right, moving right along. What have I got here? Oh, yes, highlights from Charlie Munger's Daily Journal <laughs> Q&A. Now, the reason I said that Murph is a bit of a lazy piker for retiring in 96 is Charlie just turned 98 on January 1st <laughs> and just did this lengthy Q&A for the other business that he's on the board of, the Daily Journal, his newspaper slash tech company. Did you catch that? Did you watch any of that? I didn't know. Oh, somebody posted it on our QAV Club Facebook group. I watched most of it. Fantastic. I mean, <laughs> 98, and he's as sharp as a tack, direct, straight to the point. And, you know, he really shines when he doesn't have Warren there. Like, you know, when he and Warren are together, Warren fields most of the questions in his sort of folksy manner, and then Charlie just comes out with a little barbed comment every now and again about, Venereal disease. This one, you know, when it's the Daily Journal, unless it's a like a day-to-day -day business topic where his partner takes it, he takes all the questions and uh, 
Yeah, there were, there was so many great quotes. I won't go to the best. The, the one that I just wanted to mention though was he said the and somebody asked him about um, value investing. Is it going out of style or something? <laughs> and he said the idea of getting more value than you pay for is never going to be obsolete. And that pretty much sums it up. True. Exactly. It's amazing though, isn't it? I mean, we're lucky to have these people in our lives because they've provided the link to value investing for us. But that, I mean, that the person who asked that question uh, is is like probably ninety eight percent of people who are investing. They just don't get value investing, and you can count the number of people on one hand who've preached value investing. Like you, you know, your Graham and Dodds, your Warren Buffetts, your Charlie Mungers. And I start to run out of names there. And yet it's been around for a long time. It's been proven to be the most successful way to invest. Why don't people get it? Yeah. Look, I, I think it was Ben Graham uh, or it might have been Buffett, somebody I read a while ago talking about it's a, a personality type, maybe a certain disposition that it takes. Do you think there's any truth to that? I think it could be that. It does require patience, as, as Buffett has said. It does require taking the emotion out of things, ignoring the market, ignoring the, well, not ignoring the market. Well, yeah, probably ignoring the market, ignoring the noise. Buffett was in Omaha, Nebraska to get away from Wall Street. Well, I mean, I think he wanted to live there, but benefited from being away from Wall Street and not having his phone ring every five minutes with another offer. So, yeah, there's some truth in that. And look, there's, there's plenty of people out there who don't get spreadsheets, who don't like numbers, so I get that too. But you'd think after The Intelligent Investor was written in 1930, 1920, something like that, it's 100 years old. You'd think that almost everyone by now would be a value investor. I just find it strange that Charlie still gets asked this question. <laughs> yeah, like uh, I think uh, Taylor has said to me in a couple of cases, what are you going to do when QAV is so big that everyone's doing it? And, uh, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. Celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I said, yeah, 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 buy, Trump, Trump well buy an island off of uh, Richard Branson. <laughs> yeah. I said, yeah, I just, you know, it's just not going to happen, man. People have been trying to teach people value investing for 100 years and, and, you know, it's still not something you really hear talked about a lot in the media. It's sort of the red-headed bastard stepchild. Every couple of years they go, oh, oh, sorry. Oh, analogy. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I said stepchild, not orphan child, stepchild. It's different. <laughs> Doctor child. People go, oh, yeah, value's coming back. Uh, looks like, you know, when everything else crashes, they go, oh, value's back again. And then that lasts, what, six months? And then they're like, oh, tech stocks are back, growth stocks are back. They don't, they don't like uh, values that you just don't hear many positive stories about it in the in the investing uh, press. I don't anyway. No, you're right, and that's the problem. It's it's not it's not sexy. It just does its thing year in year out. It's not the problem. It's good. I mean, it's good for those of us that are value investors, right? <laughs> exactly. That no one else is doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want the roller coaster ride. You don't want something blowing up and making the front page all the time. You don't want your CEO smoking crack on, on a video and being sacked. All those kinds of things, what happens to all the other companies, not to the value investing companies. <laughs> yeah, it's boring and predictable and that's why we like it. Yeah, I mean, the thing review would be half a page long if it only reported on value <laughs> investing. There's no story. <laughs> all right, BFG, Tony, you've got a BFG? 
Big effing gun. <laughs> Big friendly giant. Yeah, so I think it's going to be a question later on too when we get to it, so I don't want to preempt it too much, but we did sell it from our dummy portfolio last week on the, a bad news story, which was around anti-money laundering, but we can get to that in a while. Plus their results weren't uh, received very well. They were down a little bit. And uh, the stock was down, I think, 7% after the results announcement and the AML investigation announcement. So it was clearly some bad news that we had to sell the stock for. One of the uh, very few instances where we've sold something due to bad news that I can recall. Yeah, that's right, actually. Good point. So the Fin Review gets a half-page story today from Value Investing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, because we sold something? Yeah, right. Yeah, no, because the, the, one of our stocks is being investigated for anti-money laundering. Okay, well, we'll talk more about BFG later. Hum, hum is dumb, I used to say, and then I invested in it and then I had to sell it. It's being taken out by LFS Latitude, new, new IPO. Yes, that's right. So, And LFS actually on the numbers appears on the buy list, although it's a Josephine, but they've, they've bought out hum. So, again, there's a few of these cases cropping around in the market at the moment where stocks that we find attractive are being found attractive by other companies or other players and they're starting to either take stakes or or buy them out. Something I see all the time, so it's not surprising, but it does reinforce the fact that, you know, we're sort of playing with the pros in in terms of how we invest. The other one that came to mind was uh, GMA, Gemworth, which was the uh, mortgage insurance company that um, hit our buy list last year. A company called Ares, one of the um, private equity firms from overseas, has taken a 15% stake in GMA last week. So again, they're seeing some value. And I remember doing this, uh, the pulled pork on GMA towards the end of last year. And one of the issues at the time was they were uh, having to go through a request for proposal or a, a tender, a contract tender to continue with Commonwealth Bank, which was a large part of their mortgage insurance business. And just recently, they, they received the go-ahead and that contract has been renewed and extended and straight away, big private equity firm takes a 15% stake in the company. So again, uh, somebody else can spot value out there, not just us. Yeah, and I think the share price for GMA has done very nicely too. It went from $2.18 on the 25th of January. It's now $2.86. So it's like a 70 80% uh, bump in under a month. Not bad if you own that. Yeah. And as you'd expect, because of the fact that they got the contract with CBA, that was the the big risk in the market. Well, that's it for the free episode this week. Uh, For their club members, we go on for another 45 minutes or so talking about Challenger being back on our buy list. Uh, Tony did a a pulled pork, a deep dive analysis on uh, South 32, another stock on our buy list. We talk about FMG being a Josephine. Then we answered listener questions about Jeremy Grantham's bubble warnings, how to use trend lines to know when to cancel a Josephine, the iron ore sell price at the moment, what Tony thinks about that, uh, whether or not we should be buying stocks closer to the sell line, using company market cap figures relative to index funds to determine whether a company's share price could be at risk of a near future increase or decrease, kissing a few frogs to get a prince and holding on just for the takeover premium and FEX's very low sell line. So that was all in our club episode this week. So uh, 
I guess check out QAV Lite if you're not ready to become a club member. That uh, is something that seems to be very exciting to a lot of our free listeners in the last week since we launched it. QAVpodcast.com.au slash light. You can uh, check that out and just get a couple of buys uh, from us each week and then we'll tell you when you need to sell them. Makes it a lot easier. You don't have to do the work yourself. I still recommend learning how to do it yourself because Tony could get hit by a bus tomorrow and then we're all uh, up shit creek without a paddle so uh, it's uh, good for us to learn how to be self-sufficient when it comes to this but if for whatever reason you don't have the time or energy or resources to do QA learn how to do it yourself right now I think this is a good interim solution with that stay safe have a good week and uh, we'll be back next week QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Thank you.